welcome to The Breakdown with Broadcom and Becky, the weekly podcast that breaks down politics, policy, and current affairs. I'm Michael Broadcorp. And I'm Becky Scher. We're doing things a bit differently this week. Typically, we tape on Monday or the week prior for our episodes being released on Tuesday morning. We are releasing our episode a little later in the day today, as we wanted to be able to give you a full recap of the Iowa caucuses, which were held yesterday, January 15th. So it's Becky and me today breaking down all things Iowa. Who came out on top? Who had a misstep? And what the exit polls are telling us. We will break down the chaos behind the media naming a winner before voting was even complete in some areas. We'll then jump across the aisle and break down the recent activity in the Democratic presidential race, with Minnesota's own Congressman Dean Phillips rising in the poll. Lastly, we'll bring it back to Minnesota and continue our conversation surrounding the new Minnesota flag and some recent pushback from Republicans. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the show. Good morning, Becky. It's great to be here today as we break down the results from last night's Iowa caucus. We're a little bit off schedule than what we normally do, but we're going to reformat some things in this upcoming nomination system to give our listeners some bonus episodes, some other content, which we'll explain here in a minute. Happy to be here. So we, based on the success of the episode that we had on the Iowa caucuses, we're going to do more bonus episodes this presidential nominating cycle. So we're going to do a bonus episode on the large events of the nominating process, caucus or primary. We're not going to do them for every single one, but we're going to do them on the larger ones. So we're going to do a bonus episode on the New Hampshire primary, piggybacking off the successful episode we had that you led on the Iowa caucuses, which was a deep dive into all things Iowa caucus. We're going to do one uh, later this week on the New Hampshire primary, which is next Tuesday. And then we're going to come up with a, a pretty aggressive schedule for releasing some bonus episodes just covering the nomination process. And what we're going to try to do is break down the historical context of each of the contests, a little bit of a framework of how they work versus other states, and then engagement with listeners about what their predictions are about the races. I love it. It was it was really fun to have on our panelists last week to talk all things previewing the Iowa caucus. And, and I'm sure as we go through this, we'll have some guests on, panelists on here and there as well. But it's an exciting time, even though it seems like we know how things are going to break down. I, I, I had a really good time looking into the history of the Iowa caucus and expect to nerd out a little bit more in the future. I did not have on any of my bingo cards ever in my life my kids coming down and saying, hey, I was listening to Miss Becky uh, explaining the Iowa caucuses. And boy, is it interesting. And so yeah. job with that. I'll I take did not it. Expect, I did not expect to have that on my punch list at any point in my life. But it was fantastic. And it was a, I thought you did an absolutely great job just breaking that episode down. I think it was informative to people. And I think it's a good model to go back. It's interesting how much of this is on TV, how much of this is in, there's an engagement on and people are following. But people don't, I think, fully understand exactly the number of delegates, how they're broken down, where we're at. And I think it was just a good exercise. And it's a good way to show, on, particularly on this podcast format, how you can really just get in the weeds on subjects and get some engagement on it. So make sure to follow us on all of our social media platforms at BB BreakPod and our website. And we're going to be doing more engagement and questions and stuff. So great job, Becky. Thanks. And there's lots to come. Uh, we've got only allot- allotted 40 delegates so far. And we need the winner needs... 1,215. So we're going to be talking about this a long time. Hopefully people find it entertaining. I'm sure they will. Speaking of, let's get into all things Iowa caucus. So quick breakdown of general results. Trump came out the big winner. I believe you and I were both correct in our predictions with that. He brought in a whopping 51% of votes, the largest margin of victory in Iowa caucus history. The past largest margin was 12%. So he got, Trump got 51%. DeSantis came in, reports 20, 21%, depending on how you are rounding it. He was polling at 15, 16%. He did overperform some polls, come in second place, not nearly, I think, the close second some people were hoping for thinking that he needed to get. Haley got 19%, and Ramaswamy did surpass 5%. He came in at 8 and has since dropped out. What is your gen- general take on the results as they came in? Are you surprised with the margin there? Are you surprised with how close DeSantis and Haley was were? And uh, what do you think? First of all, I think we did predict not only the winner, but we also predict the right order. So you and I were right about uh, being Trump 
DeSantis Haley, correct? Pat yourself on the back, yeah. And you too. We were both right. Absolutely. Uh, I, I, already go, did that. I think it was spot on analysis. Good job on our part. I was surprised by that Trump, the just the sheer force of it. And it's, but it's something that we've talked about, Becky. And so you and I have both, again, I don't speak for you, but just correct me if I'm wrong. We both have said that Trump is a runaway train. And so what can stop him? And something that we've talked about, and I think last night was just a, a splash of cold water in the faces of a number of people that look, this thing's, it's all Trump right now. It's a big Trump train. And so I was surprised by just the sheer force of it. I mean, it was, it was over 50%, which is, there's a mental kind of hurdle at kind of 50%. That's just a kind of a real strong statement that it was over 50. And then the break, then how far DeSantis was back. I did expect DeSantis to be a little, I think a little closer. It was just, but it was tough for Trump. It was a strong win for Trump. And so seeing the Trump, DeSantis, Haley numbers in that order, I do agree with Ambassador Haley that it is a two-person race and it's, it is Trump and Haley. I just don't see any viability leaving Iowa by DeSantis. I think they did not set the expectation game very well. I think Haley's campaign did a much better job of setting the expectation. And so I think she just has much more of a viable path to leave Iowa with their ticket punched than DeSantis. Your take. I completely agree. I will say I was first off surprised. I did not expect Trump to exceed 50%. That is a, a huge okay. marker. And I think that's really significant in, in how the rest of, again, you and I have been saying all along that this is Trump's. But that was astounding to me. So that was surprising. And again, like you said, the amount that DeSantis invested in Iowa compared to Haley, he was all in. He needed to have a better showing, especially as we head into New Hampshire, which is far more a Haley territory than a DeSantis territory. I I think that is unfortunately going to be a tough, a tough place for DeSantis to move to. So um, I don't expect him to drop out before then. Uh, but it will be interesting to see where things come. So a couple other stats. So like we mentioned, Ramaswamy and Hutchinson both dropped out. To be perfectly honest, didn't know Hutchinson was still in the race until I saw last night that he dropped out. Trump did come out with 98 of the 99 counties. I saw this morning the one county he lost is currently sitting at one vote. One more vote that uh, Governor Haley, Ambassador Haley got than Donald Trump in that county to rob him of his clean sweep of all 99 counties. A couple of the other things that I thought were interesting, we talked about this from Trump's successes in 2016, but of first-time caucus goers here, 53% of those first-time caucus goers did go to Trump. And again, this is with Trump spending relatively little time, energy, and money in Iowa. And I think that kind of just goes to show the groundswell and, and base and true kind of movement that Trump has in this base. Again, of those first-time caucus goers, Haley got 23%. 11% went to DeSantis, which I was surprised that Haley got more than double what DeSantis did on the first-time caucus goers. I thought from an outsider's perspective that DeSantis was targeting a little bit more of bringing some new folks in. And, and the fact that also, Ramaswamy got 10% of those first times. Turnout, lowest in a decade. Estimated, I've seen numbers between 100 and 115,000. It was bitterly cold in Iowa last night. Definitely played a role. But in 2016, we saw somewhere between 70 and 80,000 more folks than we saw this time around. Also down 121,000 in 2012. Low turnout. I don't really know that impacted much other than potentially bringing some of those new people out for a Haley or DeSantis that doesn't just have quite that energy. Did you Would you attribute some of that to the weather? Absolutely. Okay. It's one of the hardest things about caucus in the Midwest states is I used to be a chair of BPOU and here in Minnesota, and it's something working on campaigns here too. It really does play a toll, especially when you have new people that are like, well, I don't want to leave my cold house. It's negative 10 outside. That sounds awful to go sit in a gymnasium with a bunch of strangers and then have to get in my cold car at 9, 10 p.m. Sounds pretty rough unless you are, are true diehard there. So, yeah, not surprising to me. Couple other things I want to throw out there. Notes about folks that were, if they would be satisfied if a candidate won the the nomination. 61% of caucus scores said they would be satisfied if Trump won. Only 35% they would said they would be satisfied if Haley won and 42 of DeSantis. Some of these numbers I always take as these are they're just going in diehard for their folks, right? Yep. For their candidate. So those numbers 
not not too telling. But one thing I did want to chat about is what your take is on this drastic movement, enormous movement and support for Trump from the 2016 caucus. He more than doubled. In 2016, Trump came in, I think, third place, only had 24% support in the Iowa caucus. What's your take on any, is it just because of the MAGA movement or how did he get eight years later, double that support in Iowa? It is a pure MAGA movement and people are with him. He is a very polarizing candidate. And right now, people that are with him are really with him. And it is, he's gone out there and said, I'm going to be your retribution. He has staked the claim of just fighting for people and fighting with people. He has tapped in, I think, to an anger and a frustration that is a part of politics on the Republican side. And people were with him and it was just an absolute show of force last night. And I guess I would say this, is that what I was surprised about was how surprised other people were. Because this is something that you and I have talked about consistently. And not to say that we're going to be right about everything. But we were certainly right about this. And we were right about the fact that Donald Trump is in a strong position. And there's been a lot of discussions over the last couple of weeks that I've had with people about what are their expectations. And I think they thought it was going to be much more of a horse race between these two. And our votes were pretty clear. We thought it was going to be Trump, but it was a show of force. And I think you also saw flipping through the channels last night and rotating through the channels last night. I was originally watching some of MSNBC, but then later in the evening rotated through all of the news stations. And there was a, aside from Fox News, there was a lot of surprise amongst the analysts about the show of force that Trump was having. And it was was strong last night. And so it goes back to, I think, what we've said from the beginning. Donald Trump is in the driver's seat. It's his race. He's in the, he's the front runner for the nomination. And I think there are a lot of people that are attempting to rationalize and try to say, this can't be, it's going to be someone else. And it's just, the numbers are there. He won convincingly, very convincingly last night. And to, if we would have said, just go back a couple of days, if we would have said on that Friday show that we were recording to preview the caucuses, if we would have said that Donald Trump would have won 98 of 99 counties and would be close in the remaining county, People would have said, you're crazy. That's not going to happen. But he did. And I think we have to stop. I think people have to stop underestimating Trump's power that he has in this race. So you talked a little bit about the media and watching what they were saying and doing last night as we were watching the Iowa caucus coverage. I think you and I are on the same page of this, but I want to get your take because I saw a tweet you sent out. The press, the media, they called this for Trump like 8.05, so incredibly fast, before voting was even complete in some places. Talk a little bit about what that means, the frustration with that, and any impact it, it could possibly have on the results there in Iowa. So I was watching I was watching a little bit of MSC, MSNBC, and they came in with some select counties from Iowa. And I said to someone, I said, this is over with. They could ostensibly call this now. This early in, I didn't expect them to, but they could extensively call it in, call the race. And they did a few minutes later, they called it for Trump. What is disappointing about that for a couple paths? Number one, I think there is, particularly inside the Republican Party, and I consider myself to be part of the Republican Party, of course, is there's this media animosity that exists. And I think that the media, I didn't think it was necessary, number one, that they called it that soon. Um... I don't understand why they're in there. There is, I understand the desire from a news perspective to let it happen. But this is, the media knows very full that this is a caucus, which we explained very clearly on our show the difference between a caucus and a primary. This is not a situation where the voting starts at seven or eight o'clock in the morning and it goes to eight o'clock at night, and it's a gen, where it's like a direct election process. The meeting started at seven o'clock. The meeting started at that point, and there was voting that still needed to happen. And if you're sitting in a caucus and you're and, and the race is already called, it's there's a it has an impact on the vote. It could it, if if I was a DeSantis or a, a Haley supporter, what's the incentive for me on a cold night to sit there when the race has already been called? What's the incentive for me to sit there and vote and to go through the process if I'm watching a football game? And I get there at 8.05, and they're, they're, they already tell me what the score of the game is going to be. Why should I stay? And it, someone's already going to be declared the winner. Why should I stay? So it has both an energizing effect for 
the victor. It has a deflating effect in some ways on the candidates that would want. I would also say there's also a scenario by which if people are are a Trump supporter and you're like, God, it's cold. He's already been declared the victor. I can just, I can blow doors and get out of here and be home and watch this. My vote's not needed. It just has an impact. And I don't think it was necessary. I don't think it was needed. And I wish that the media would have a reasonable amount of patience and just let the process play out. Because now there's going to be a series of stories and discussions about whether it was appropriate or not. It's going to give a whole bunch of fodder to Republicans to complain about the role of the media. And I want the media to succeed. I want the media to succeed. Um, and I want, But I also want the party process to work out. And sometimes the media just needs to be more observers and just sit back and let the process happen. They could have waited a couple, they could have waited an hour or two. It really wouldn't have reframed much of the discussion. And it, it's just frustrating because I know what's going to dominate the media cycle. It's going to be a bunch of noise. It's going to be a bunch of noise that is going to be a distraction. And But I do think that the media really stepped in it. And I, I wish they wouldn't have done it last night. I wish they would have just waited till, more, till there was more voting going on. Uh, because I, wait until they waited until the, the voting had stopped, uh, because there was voting going on at that exact point. Absolutely, and I think even if they obviously everybody is waiting with bated breath to see what happens. Even a different phrasing of a lot of the stuff that they said, rather than declaring the victory, everybody knows that entrance polls and exit polls happen, which we're going to get into here shortly. But it was really frustrating, and especially when we've already had so many different things that put asterisks over these different campaigns or candidates or whatever it is. And it's just detrimental and sets a poor precedent of going forward. I wanted to read a tweet that we got sent to us after you had tweeted and I also tweeted about or or shared your tweet. And that says, if there's two minutes left in the fourth quarter and the winning team is up by four touchdowns, it's pretty safe to assume who's going to win. 100% agree that we all knew that Donald Trump was going to win. That is fair. The difference here is it's not a winner-take-all state. Like we talked about, there are winner-take-all states where the person who receives the most votes gets all of the delegates in that. There is an allotment of delegates coming from the proportionality of these votes. And so do I think it made a significant difference and DeSantis or Haley would have gotten two or three more delegates out of that? And do I even think that we're going to get down to a delegate count at the actual convention in, in June or July? No. But it sets that, like you said, it puts doubt in people's minds. It has just a kind of chilling effect on the actual participation of folks on either side, whoever they're supporting. And it just is completely unnecessary. And I think it's a really big frustrating part of watching last night. And so I I completely share your frustration with that. I do want to chat briefly about some of these entrance and exit polls. I had tweeted one when I was watching, and again, difference of, so entrance polls, they gather people as they're walking in, exit polls as they're walking out. So there's a bunch of different information that we glean from this. A couple different ones I want to get into here. First off, 80% of the caucus goers had made up, said that they had made up their mind about voting earlier this month or even before that, which kind of... I think in Iowa, in this situation in particular, 80% is really high for that. A lot of times I feel like it is a little bit closer that folks do leave it up in the air. And I think that is something that only Trump is somebody who can help the mega movement and everything is is a defining factor in that. Let's talk issues for a second. And I want to see if you are surprised by this or not. Of the issues, exit polls, issues show economy top issue at 38%. Immigration, 34%. Foreign policy, 12%. Abortion, 11%. Do any of those surprise you that they're in the top four? And do any of them surprise you about their placement? I was surprised at how low abortion was. Agreed. That was the one that stuck out to me. I was surprised at how low abortion was because there was a lot of discussion, particularly in Iowa. Trump did an incredibly good... This is what's so interesting about Trump. You can make the argument that based on some of his recent town hall comments and discussions that he's had that his position on abortion has softened a bit, that he's become much more realistic of where the Republican Party's position is on abortion and how it conflicts with where voters are right now. And so that's interesting to me, that discussion. The other thing is on abortion, how low it is. Because again, this is the issue that has really dogged Republicans. It really hurt Republicans in 2022, particularly in Minnesota. And so 
I am surprised at its its placement. And I, I hope, to be honest with you, I'm surprised, but also I hope it stays in that type of low factor because I think the problem the party has right now is the more that we talk about abortion, when the more that Republicans talk about abortion until they have fleshed out a good concrete policy as to where it should be, I think we're only going to start, Republicans are only going to be hurt by that issue because I do think it's an issue that they haven't spent enough time talking about and framing up for the general election. We'll see where that goes. I, I, economy and immigration, I think those are going to be top issues. If this election cycle is about economy and immigration, I think Republicans are going to do very well. Those are going to be, and so I'm surprised only from the standpoint is that this is a good breakdown that will help the Republicans in 2024. If they can keep to these, if this type of general framework has the issues, I could see Democrats wanting to raise abortion more into the into the discussion because that is a, an issue that is cr- incredibly mobilizing to them in contrast to how Republicans view about it. So what's your take? First on abortion, completely agree. I expected that to be top two, three for sure. It's a close fourth. One thing that I will say also from an exit poll, most GOP caucus goers, six in 10, so 60% said that more and more than half said that they favor a federal law banning most or all abortions nationwide. That is something that if I were a Democrat, I would pounce on. It, Democrats pounce, always a yep. funny little thing here. But it is something that if I were a Democrat, I would push that out there and say majority, 60% of Republicans want to ban all abortions. That's that is significant. Now, caucus goers are not necessarily the same as average voters. There's a whole lot of different backgrounds from that, but that was something that I was surprised. I, I guess not surprised. It was six and ten, but notable. Immigration. I did see uh, a little bit of back and forth between some Democrats, just saying wild that immigration is that high for Republicans, and I think it is just still astounding to me that Democrats do not fully grasp the the issues that uh, a lot of Republican voters and candidates see with the immigration policy um, and, and simply that how much it is draining our economy. And, and I'm for, I supported the DREAM Act and all sorts of different things and certainly think that more changes need to be made. But I think it is very telling that Democrats do fully don't understand the concerns that Republicans have when it comes to immigration policies and the need for reforms there. If Republicans continue pushing that forward, I think that is, like you said, going to be a successful path forward now Uh, one last thing one last thing back to immigration what i find so interesting about immigration is trump's mantra in 2016 i'm going to build the wall and mexico is going to pay for it i don't and and my, my point is that the wall wasn't built mexico didn't pay for it and so to see immigration up so high on the republican side someone could very clearly draw a line between had Donald Trump followed through on his promises of what he said he was going to happen in 2016, which I didn't believe was going to happen in 2016 and didn't happen. What where would the immigration problem where would where would immigration be right now if Donald Trump had been successful in building the coalition needed to build that type of wall and get it done the way that those Republican voters did? I find it interesting how high immigration is, yet Donald Trump is winning, leading the nomination. And so there's a, I think there's a connection between those two, and it just shows a little bit of the disconnect that these voters have. And we talked about this a little bit last on our last episode of with Andy Brem about how, him relaying how Donald Trump actually is anti-Republican on a lot of things, right? Can you imagine? So here we're going to have Biden. Say, let's say Trump is elected in 2024. We're going to have Biden in there for four years, and people are going to say immigration policy went to hell in a handbasket under Biden. But to your exact point. Did not improve under Donald Trump. And I guarantee you, Republican voters are going to say, Biden screwed us over in four years. Donald Trump just needed more time. Correct. That's why we need Donald Trump is because four years wasn't long enough for him to build the wall and have Mexico pay for it. But the next four years, he's our man. Yep. You're spot on. It's just wild. So now I want to get into some really concerning parts of these entrance polls that we saw. Um, The first one I saw, and I tweeted this out last night, do you think Joe Biden legitimately won the presidency? The answer to that, 66% of Iowa caucus voters said no. 66% of Republican Iowa caucus goers said they do not think that President Joe Biden legitimately won the presidency. Bonkers. 
Absolutely bonkers. I read your when I saw your tweet come over, I'm like, oof, this is just bonkers. So 66 percent of Republicans do not two think thirds. That, two thirds do not think that Joe Biden legitimately won the election in 2020. Explain just from your perspective, just opine on that and give us more of your take. <laughs> now, obviously, caucus goers and and folks that are the hyper intense involved folks do consume a lot of echo chamber media and news and things from their candidates. So it doesn't largely surprise me that they would get these MAGA voters, which I'll come back to, by that. How it's common sense, right? To get on a tangent real quick is also we picked up seats like Michelle Fishbach in that same election. So you're like, did she win or did Trump lose? You don't get to have it both ways and that we maintained and won all these seats but lost the presidency because that's just wild. But the fact that literally only a third, 29% of those folks said that, yes, Joe Biden is legitimately our president right now is just astounding. And in an overall makes me want to cry a little bit of what our, our path forward and how much work we have to do in the Republican Party to like take this back and, and change things a little bit. I do think, and we'll tweet out, I'll tweet out this article later, that breaks down in a graphic form because I also think it's very telling when you look at it and see. So of those 66% no voters, 69% of those were Trump voters at the caucus. So large majority, 17% of those people who say Joe Biden is not legitimately the presidency or did not legitimately win, 17% of those are DeSantis supporters, only 5% of Haley. So when you look at the other side of the yes, the people, the 30% almost that say yes, Joe Biden legitimately won, 53% of those folks voted for or support Ambassador Haley, which I just think to me, I want to wrap my arms around those 53% because I think that is largely like my people in the grand scheme of reasonable reasonability and common sense. I just, I really hoped that the number I was seeing at those entrance polls was going to shift and become a little bit better. And it was just like the crazy people that showed up first. Sorry, I shouldn't say crazy. It was, blew me away. And the challenge is coming into this election cycle is what's going to happen. How is that number? Do you see a scenario by which that number improves? If, if it is Biden and Trump in this election cycle and you get to November and Trump, depending whoever wins the election, I let me rephrase it. No, actually, I'm going to correct myself. Uh, I'm going to fact check myself in real time. If Biden loses and Trump wins, Republicans will have complete faith in the election process. They will believe it was handled correctly. And that's the way it always should have been. And that's what's so dangerous here is that. I do think that there's been election, there's been election, contesting elections has been a part of election processes for a very long amount of time. It happens on both sides, but it went to the absolute extreme level in the aftermath of the 2020 election to inappropriate, in some ways, criminal levels as to where it's gone. And we've spoken out against January 6th and other types of stuff. And it's now gotten to be this absolutely deranged mindset about what people have towards the election process and the cycle. And so to see these numbers and to also know that absent Donald Trump winning and winning in a convincing margin, I don't know that this goes away anytime soon. And so it's it's something that has to be remedied, not just by making sure that the next election is cooked, but by making sure that people understand that they lost and that they lost fairly. I just think that this is going to be this type of this type of number, uh, and where it's at sixty six, we can't simply. It's not sustainable, in for in this country, nor in Minnesota, nor anywhere, to have sixty six percent of the people questioning whether someone actually won the election, and it's just not a good place for democracy. And a lot needs to be done to break break down that number. And this is something, and maybe we have Secretary of State Steve Simon on again to walk us through some of these recent changes in Minnesota and the integrity ahead of this upcoming election. But like you said, if Trump wins, folks are going to be like, yes, it was a perfect process, but no significant changes. We're not brand new voting machines. There's not this all of this new revamp stuff that has happened because there was no widespread fraud. Now, I certainly are there different things that we have in our current elections system here in Minnesota, like unlimited vouching and different things that I have issues with, sure, there are concerns and vulnerabilities that I personally believe that could be tightened up. But do I believe Joe Biden was legitimately elected our president in 2020? 
100%. And I think you do too. I think we've both made that relatively clear. And it's just really concerning that this is such a widespread thought among caucus goers in Iowa. In addition, another one of the entrance polls that was a little shocking to me. If Donald Trump were to be convicted of a crime, would you consider him fit to be president? 65% said yes. Only 31% said if he was convicted of a crime, they would not consider him fit for president. Does that surprise you? Yes. (laughs) It does. It does. It really does. Fun crime Republicans, right? Correct. I don't know which number is more concerning to me. They're both equally concerning to me. But the fact that 65% of people said if Donald Trump were to be convicted of a crime, would you consider him fit to be president? I don't understand why being convicted of a crime is, is a mark of good judgment and good behavior. I just don't, particularly for the number of crime things he's, that he's facing. There are a number, I think the count is four, four substantive criminal investigations that he's currently facing, roughly 91 charges he's, that have been filed against him. And so I do, I really have to question this. I really have to question the mindset here because... I think the more that he gets in, and I understand that these are Republicans and this is where they're at, but in terms of general election voters, it's not a badge of honor. It's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt him. And so the disconnect that exists between these candidates, the disconnect that in terms of, the, not the disconnect between the candidates, but the disconnect that voters have in their answers on these questions, they're so inconsistent. And I, it leads me to, it just, all I can vision is this is this leading towards a big dumpster fire in November, a big dumpster fire in November, because I think his problems are going to get worse. His legal problems are going to get, his legal problems are going to get worse while his political problems are becoming less of an issue because I mean, now it's not a matter of overlaying the kind of the, the caucus schedule and the primary schedule. What you need to overlay is the criminal schedule and see the overlap between those things. Those are going to be more hurdles, but it seems based on these numbers that it's just going to be not going to be a hurdle. It's just going to be a little speed bump that he's just going to have to plow over. I think it's fascinating that there are different aspects of life, applying to law school, applying to the FBI, going through all of these different things, where being convicted of a crime is is an immediate disqualifier, right? I applied to law school. You have to fill out anything that you, every speeding ticket, every traffic violation, everything, because they believe that to be somebody who is is working in a courtroom or working with the law, that your criminal activity, now things might've changed. This was some 20 years almost 20 years ago that I was applying to the law school, but that they believe that those are disqualifiers because of your moral compass, because of your, all of these different things. And it, it it's just wild. That doesn't also extend to the presidency of, of the greatest nation in the world. Yeah. I, I'm concerned with that as well. Uh, one of the last ones here I want to touch on is, do you consider yourself part of the MAGA movement? Only 46% of caucus goers said yes. Are they just not wanting to lump themselves in with this mega movement? What is your take there? Because I personally believe that number is significantly higher. I I believe that three quarters of Iowa caucus goers or two thirds would I would would place them in the mega movement. Is this just they don't want to be lumped in with that? I would agree with you on that. I think it's in some senses it's a pejorative phrase that they're it's it's not something that they want to be associated with. You could, and so I think it's based on the results. I think it's fair to say, and I think it was Representative Hudson who discussed this in the last episode. And I think we've also discussed this too, of there being a MAGA lane. And that MAGA lane is, is occupied, which is the largest lane inside the party process to get the nomination. I would venture to say that the MAGA lane is, is probably closer to two thirds uh, of the space. And so to see it this low, I think may have just been the willingness on people to identify themselves with that. Because if you were to look at the Trump I would it, how I would envision the the true MAGA lane is taking the Trump number plus the DeSantis number, and that's the MAGA lane, which would put that closer to sixty, in closer to you know sixty seventy percent. Uh, I think probably closer to seventy percent, which would be that kind of two thirds, nearly a little bit more than that two thirds mark uh, inside the party. So this is a little low for me, but I think that I think I would attest that too, and just, and probably just say it hesitancy to identify in that type of way. And so I would agree with your perspective and take as to why that number is so low. 
Last exit poll I want to say hit on about 14% of caucus goers, a measly 14%, said the most important factor in deciding their vote was finding somebody who can defeat Joe Biden. This is one of the main issues with Republican politics today. 75% of them prioritized a candidate who shares my values or fights for people like me. Now, I want a fighter. I want somebody who, yes, is on my side, who I believe in, who believes in the same things as me. Absolutely. But we need somebody who can freaking win elections to have any change on those priorities and values that we and people like me feel up. And this is something I don't believe is just a Trump thing. I think that we have this issue here in the state of Minnesota, largely why with the endorsement process, we are not successful then getting to the general election because people just are, it's the purity test. And if you're not with me 100%, you're against me. And this is, we are never going to be successful as Republicans, aside from Donald Trump, who is the, is not the rule. He's the exception, uh, drives me up the wall. Yes. When you were going through this number, I was immediately thought to myself, the Ken Brockman quote from The Simpsons. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Democracy simply doesn't work. And it's true. This is a clear example of where it just, I, you, I just want to just be like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Your objective is to win elections. The only way you can govern is if you win elections. And so you have to support candidates who can win in November. And that's the problem right now, as I think Republicans are having, because it, there's just that disconnect. Do you understand that the candidate you're, book, you're, you're backing and supporting, if you're going to have them be so ideologically pure or so polarizing that they're not palatable to the general election, that you could end up losing? And that's the discussion that we have, because the same group of people who are supporting the candidate that only, that they have no framework or kind of comments, they have no understanding of that whoever they pick is going to get decided by a larger pool of voters. These are the same people that on election day, when they lose, they're going to scratch their head and wonder what happened and what went wrong. And this is this kind of analysis of, are we picking candidates can, that can win, is the last kind of taboo of politics that I really think we need to break through with candidate Republicans on, is do they have an appreciation for can their candidate win in November? That's the question that they need to ask. And for some reason, asking primary or caucus voters, particularly on the Republican side, to ask themselves, can they win in November, seems to be a question that is somehow dirty or it's unseemly, or you don't have principles or values if you're asking that type of stuff. Make no mistake, it's happened on the Democratic side too. I've seen examples over the years of where Democratic activists have picked candidates that aligned with more of their values, but we're not going to be palatable in the general election. So it happens to both sides. But Republicans, particularly in this state, have been tripped up by that more. That's the honest answer. That's the honest question that they need to answer is, it, it, is the candidate that I'm supporting able to win in November? And if they're not able to win in November, what am I doing this for? Because it's just a, it's just an exercise in futility because it's not going to, it's not going to matter because the candidate that I'm picking is not going to, is not going to win in November. 100%. And that doesn't mean that I necessarily believe early in the process you just need to fall in line or not make your voice heard. But we do need to be prioritizing that as our question. Either support a candidate who can win or find a different candidate and have them get in the race or, or whatever that might be. It just – we need to be prioritizing somebody that can win and then we can work on that purity side a little bit more. Man, oh, man. It was just uh, – Lots of shocks last night, lots of non-shocks. It, it, I'm excited to see the path forward. We'll chat more about our previews for New Hampshire coming up. Anything to close out Iowa caucus before we move on? It's cold. Oh, here's a question I have for you. Do, do, do you think there were any structural changes or any deficiencies that will happen that'll be changed going forward? Assuming we might be in this, we might be in this same position in four years. Do you think that there'll be any changes? You think the Iowa caucuses will last for another four years? On the Republican side, yeah, I don't see them going away quite yet. I don't see, yeah, I, I think that we'll see them again in four years in the same light that we saw them last night. I would agree. All right, moving on. Let's break down all things Dean Phillips. You want to kick us off here? Dean Phillips is rising in the polls. Sure is. He's going up. And I think that, let's talk about this for a second. Dean Phillips, who a presidential candidate that we we interviewed on our on our podcast a few months ago when he first got in the race 
Dean Phillips is going up in the polls, going up and going up, which is, I'm not a political, you're a political strategist, I'm a political strategist in some sense. I think we want the polls to go up rather than go down. And Dean Phillips' numbers are going up. They're going up quite convincingly. I do think, let's pause for a second and just say that institutionally, there's a number of hurdles that are in his place. But I think what it shows for a moment, his rise in the polls, is something that I think is existing in both parties, which is people are, while Biden and Trump are clearly in the driver's seat to win the nomination, there is clearly also an appetite for there to be candidates other than them. And I think there's a growing argument in both parties that it would be good if it was someone other than Trump and someone other than Biden. And I think what's going to be interesting about that is the more Trump succeeds, I think the more Biden succeeds, I think that discussion is only going to increase because people are going to starting to come to the realization, which is something that we've talked about before, is that it's going to be, it's in reality, it's very likely going to be Trump and Biden. A lot of things would have to change to prevent that from happening. But there's been developments with Dean Phillips, which is when we had him on the podcast one very early on, and even before he was on, we discussed that his argument was correct. His, he was making a good point, a true point about where the poll showed that people wanted there to be someone else other than Trump and other than Biden. And Phillips was offering himself as an alternative in the Democratic process to be that candidate that's the alternative of Biden. And by every available measurement, there's a marketplace, that marketplace exists, and Phillips is a benefactor of that. I still think it's a very tough road for him to become the nominee, but based on poll numbers, he's succeeding. And we also had Bill Ackman, a billionaire who wrote on on X, formerly known as Twitter, that Phillips is the candidate that he's going to be backing, and he's going to invest close to, if not near, a billion dollars in helping Dean Phillips get elected president. That's a big momentum changer for Dean Phillips. And it's a reflection of what we've talked about and what Phillips has been mentioning. And his whole kind of centerpiece of his campaign is that there has to be alternatives, that people are looking for different candidates. And Phillips has also said, which is reflected in the polls, that Biden could be vulnerable to Donald Trump if he were the nominee. Your take. Yeah, this most recent poll is American Research Group on January 15th, has Biden at 58% and Phillips at 28%. That is a significant jump over low or high single digits, low double digits. And so it certainly shows uh, momentum. Now, will that impact anything? Only time will tell here. But like you said, Bill Ackman on Twitter, he wrote, this is by far the largest investment I have ever made in someone running for office. And I'm making this investment in a high risk, but critically important moment for his campaign. So it will also be interesting. This just happened in the last couple of days. If other people fall in line here, right? Nobody wants to be the first. And as these things happen, as polls start shifting, as people start backing a candidate like Dean Phillips, do others fall in line and what impact will that have? It is interesting to see Minnesotan's own Dean Phillips here and we'll watch closely. I will say this. I still think it's going to be Trump and Biden. I still think it's going to be Agreed. Trump and Biden. But I will say to you that I'm becoming, I would be less surprised if that dynamic were to shift. I think it's more likely to shift on the Democratic side than it is on the Republican side. Because based on the numbers here, Donald Trump is a runaway train right now. He has some hurdles coming up related to his legal challenges. But based on some of these numbers that have come out of Iowa, people, are, people at least on the Republican side, are not dissuaded in voting from him based on any of these legal things that happen. We'll see how that shifts if he starts to get some convictions. Uh, if he's convicted of any of these things, we'll see where that process is at. But I would be, again, I still think it's going to be Trump and Biden. But I'm coming a little less, I would be less surprised if there wasn't some type of acknowledgement of what's to come, of, of the realities of the race. Because I just don't think, I don't want to be naive and say that you can ignore, I don't want it to be, I don't want to be too naive and say you can't ignore Dean Phillips because when he's got a billion dollars behind him, it's pretty tough to ignore him. And based on the poll numbers, his numbers are going up. And I think it's a reflection once again that, okay, I understand people have some animosity toward Dean Phillips for what he's doing, but just set that animosity aside and look at the numbers. He's not wrong. He's absolutely not wrong on what he's saying 
how Americans are looking at this race and how they would like it to be in terms of poll numbers. He's just simply not wrong. Yep. I agree, man. All right. Next up, we are going to chat more about the Minnesota flag. I know thrilling concept and topic here. We recently had Carl Yeager on and broke down all of the, how we got from 2,200 options down to the new flag and seal that was selected. But recently, the Minnesota Republican Party announced their direct opposition to the new state flag. Republican Party Chair David Hahn and Deputy Chair Donna Bergstrom released a statement. Bergstrom, who is a Native American, did start hers with, as a Native American and tribal member, it is exhausting to see Native Americans once again bearing the brunt of the short-sighted eradication of our shared history. Keeping the current flag would have been a powerful acknowledgement from the Walls administration and the DFL that our Native contributions are valued. Interesting take on that. What's your overall thought on both that argument and just the pushback in general? Are you surprised? Is this something we did chat a little bit about if the new flag was going to be accepted or not? I think that the flag, and just looking at just the issue, I I, I think it's a fantastic issue in a sense that it's not necessarily partisan because I think on both sides, we had Carl Yeager on talking about it, who just was, he's, he's a progressive Democrat. He was very passionate that it was, a, that he did not like the flag nor the flag process by which it was the ultimate outcome. And then you have Republicans saying, look, let's slow this down. Let's do this different. I think it's going to be a, a good discussion. I think it's just an issue that's not going to go away. I think it's going to be, it was one of the top issues that I had listed in 2023. And I think it could really, we could really see some creativity this upcoming legislative session about what the flag outcome is, what it's going to be. I could see legislators submitting flag designs and we'll see how it goes. I think it's just a very Minnesotan type issue to fight over this flag. I, I'm, we had a good discussion about the flag in terms of how it currently looks. I'm still annoyed by that blue, that little <laughs> soft, that soft blue. That's still the one that bothers me. Yeah, I think that it would be good in speaking to, in, in just in speaking with people generally. I think there's pretty widespread opposition to both the outcome of what the new flag looks like and some of the process. I think the people that like the flag seem to be people, who, flag experts. Not to say that Carl Yeager is an absolutely flag expert and he's in opposition to it, but it seems that there's a lot of there's a lot of there's just a small group of people that are really passionate about that flag and liking it. I think there's more widespread opposition to it, and this could be a fun issue to watch. There's not a lot of, I think, in this kind of hyper partisan environment. I don't think there's a lot of necessarily some fun issues that can be discussed and bantered back and forth. I do hope that this could be an issue that there could be some discussion on about our state's history perspectives on it and offer maybe coming up with a new design it could be an issue that might be a might there might be some some tension there might be some passion in it but it's not framed in kind of the traditional kind of people throwing rocks and stuff at each other there just could be a good sizable discussion on this and i hope to see that and it's a great issue to talk about it's great for downloads it's great it's great on social media it's great to talk about and I think it's going to be an issue that we're going to have to watch during this legislative session because I could see legislators introducing their individual flags, uh, their ideas, and we'll see where it comes. I don't know. Got to remember something. Partisan makeup of the legislature. Democrats control both the House and the Senate, and they control the governor's office. And there's going to need to be some bipartisan support amongst Democrats and Republicans to have there be any change. Right now, the Republicans have staked out, staked a flag, if you would pun intended, on where they think about the flag issue. We'll see where Democrats come in on it. It'll be interesting to see. And correct me if I'm wrong, but currently the next step in the process is that this flag that was chosen in SEAL go to the legislature to either be adopted or denied, right? I think it it's in place unless the legislature decides to change it. Gotcha. And so okay. they would have to take a proactive step to slow it down, and we'll see where that happens. But I don't think it's an issue that's going away because people love to talk about it. And it's and now that the Republicans again, play on words, stake the flag and where they think on the issue, I think it's going to only come up a little bit more. But we'll see. It's it's going to be a fun issue to talk about. And again, I think I hope there can be some levity with the discussion. It's obviously a very serious issue in terms of our symbols and our, the imagery that we use for our state. But this would be, I think, a good opportunity for there to be potentially some bipartisan support in changing it because we got to get rid of that blue. We got to get rid of that blue. That blue is just a crime. It, that blue is just a crime. That's sure not blue. Is. 
Yep. Uh, also on the having fun with it, um, you know, I always like any time a candidate or a party or whoever it may be takes advantage of an opportunity um, with some to play fun and, you know, raise money in the process. The MNGOP has launched a new website on this or a new page on their website, mngop.org slash save the flag. They have merch. They have shirts that have the, I guess if we call it the current or, or old or original flag that say a couple of options are erasing history. History never ends well. Don't PC our flag. Historic Minnesota fighting for historic Minnesotan fighting for freedom since 1861. The messaging is, certainly plays well with the base. If you want to rile up those troops and get some folks out there that are going to maybe write their legislators or make a big stink about it, they're on the right track there. So. You're right. It is fun. It's something that's not so serious when there's so much seriousness going around. And it's certainly serious to some people. Aside from that horrific blue, I am just going to watch on the fun side of things. It'll be a fun issue to watch. All right. That is our show. Again, as a reminder, we're coming up with this bonus series on Iowa or on caucuses and primaries and the standings. Be sure to follow us at BB Break Pod, where you can see graphics. We put out one last night that has shows the delegate allotment to date. We will continue to preview and give our predictions, recap all things. If there's anything that any listener wants to hear more of, hear less of, know more about, let us know. This is fun. I've enjoyed my deep dives and finding all sorts of new things. I appreciate you being with us here today, Michael, and bringing all your fun puns and everything of the sort. Glad to be here. And again, just great job with that last episode and moving forward. I think it was a great structure, a great deep dive. And uh, there is, you are, you, getting you to nerd out about a subject is always a strong place for downloads. The quotient <laughs> goes up. It's just fantastic. And you just really crushed it on that Iowa caucus episode. We're going to be doing one on the New Hampshire primary and you got to bring your A game, which I know you will. I'll do my best. Thank you. Bye. We want to thank you for listening to The Breakdown with Broad Corbin Becky. Before we go, show some love for your favorite podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on the platform where you listen. You can leave a review or give us a shout out on our website or across all social media platforms at BB Breakpod. The Breakdown with Broad Corbin Becky will return next week. Thank you again for listening.